Hello and welcome to a new episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're on Series 8, and as regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, every once in a while we mix up the format a bit and I talk to somebody who has an overview of the design world. And this week I'm delighted to tell you that my guest is the brilliant Paola Antonelli. Paola is a senior curator at New York's Museum of Modern Art in the Department of Architecture and Design, as well as the institution's founding director of research and development. Over her 25 years at the museum, she's curated shows such as Mutant Materials and Contemporary Design, Work Spheres, and Design and the Elastic Mind. Most recently, she's been responsible for Broken Nature in Milan's Triennale in 2019 and Neri Oxman Material Ecology. She has lectured and given talks all over the world and picked up a fistful of awards, including this year's London Design Medal. In collaboration with the writer Alice Rostorn, her latest project, entitled Design Emergencies, is a series of interviews on Instagram which investigates design's importance during the pandemic. Paola, are you with us? I am. Thank you, Grant. I'm like, ooh, I'm, I'm just like cherishing this introduction. It's so nice. Thank you. <laughs> oh, good. Did I get it all right? You got it perfectly. Oh, good. Thank you I'm so glad much. To hear it. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Can we kick off by talking a bit about, well, it's been an interesting time in the United States. There's a genuine test of democracy going on. Democracy, as we know, is quite a fragile thing. And as we talk, Trump is refusing to concede. Joe Biden is in a transition process and all this against the backdrop of the virus. How's it feeling over there right now? It's very unreal and surreal and hard to believe. Um, there are amazing acts of courage and clarity. For instance, yesterday there was uh, a functionary from Georgia, from the electoral system of Georgia, that gave an impassioned and really angry speech accusing the senators of Georgia, the Republican senators that are running for the next elections, and the president of not saying anything in front of death threats that had been made to poor 20-year-old employees of the electoral system in Georgia. I mean, it's crazy what's going on. I, I'd never thought that we could get to this point. It feels like I've been asking people this forever in this podcast, but we can't really avoid the virus. We'll get onto the topic of what you've been up to in the past few months shortly, but I'm interested in how MoMA as an institution has coped with the situation. Oh, we got to talk about the virus. It's part of our reality. We need to cope with it. So MoMA has been really well, like all other institutions, we closed down on March, I think it was March 13th that we just locked the doors and then we waited until we could reopen. And we did so um, in this particular case on August 27th. And throughout, in the time that in that went in between, it was incredibly interesting. I was part of the crisis management team. And if Alice ever listens to this podcast, she's going to laugh because I've been so proud of being part of the crisis management team. But that <laughs> meant that every week we retained an immunologist, a really great immunologist from Mount Sinai Hospital. And every week, together with colleagues from the security department, from building operations, from finance, I mean, you name it, we were a group that basically secured the building, both for employees and for visitors, making sure that all protocols were respected. And actually, we did write some protocols ourselves. And there was 
a consortium of about 20 plus institutions that were trying to really find out how to reopen. So it's been exemplary. And we reopened August 27, of course, at very reduced capacity with some protocols of entry. But the problem is something that sometimes my cousins and sisters and brothers in Europe don't realize is that most institutions here in the United States are private. MoMA, for instance, gets no public money whatsoever. What we get from memberships and visitors is what keeps the lights on and the endowment and, and sponsors. So it's been really, really tough. Of course, there's people that have had it much worse than we have. The tragedy and the difficulties are spread all over the world and all over the United States, but it's been tough and it's not going to get any better for quite a while. Even when we'll reopen completely and the vaccine is going to be spread, it's going to take us years to get back to normalcy between quotes. So have you managed to keep yourself on an even financial keel in that case? Well, we have the endowment. We have really generous board and really generous sponsors. And we have tightened the belt. We have slashed budgets. We have looked at the schedule and the calendar. So we have adapted, you know, so we managed not to lay anybody off by taking pay cuts and offering voluntary transitioning plans. So it's been difficult, but I'm always quite amazed by how my colleagues and the museum step up to difficulties. I've been here, as you said, well, now it's going to be 27 years in February. So I've gone through several emergencies, New York emergencies, and seen how the museum behaved and other museums too. Cultural institutions are the churches and squares of the United States. It's interesting. So cultural institutions really are the bellwether also of civic responses and civic spirit. It's beautiful. Mm. I mean, I've been, for various reasons that I won't go into here, but I've been stuck in the countryside just outside London for most of this pandemic. When I went back into the West End, when we were allowed briefly over the summer, I was quite shocked at the state of London and the number of bars and clubs and pubs and theatres and cinemas that are shut and won't come back. How is New York itself looking? It's going to be the same. I mean, New York is really interesting. It's not that cold yet. So what happened during the pandemic is that we moved the restaurants outside, so outdoors. So all of a sudden, New York looked like Milan, like the Navigli. Milan is my city. So it was quite gorgeous. Everybody outside and New Yorkers have civic spirit. So everybody has masks, everybody behaves. It's beautiful to watch. And there's been this street life that came back. But that kind, the kind of semi-euphoria, or at least adaptation, hides the fact that restaurants are really, really suffering. And many of them will not come back, as will not many retailers. I mean, also because of what happened during the Black Lives Matter protests, there were a few episodes of looting that were not connected to the protesters, but rather were quite opportunistic. But they sent retail into even more of a tailspin. So maybe many streets were boarded up. So I don't know if anybody has seen that movie, I Am Legend, <laughs> or like even 1999 Escape from New York. Right. I mean, some parts yeah. of the city look really, look really <laughs> a little scary. And some other parts instead look like the Navigli. So We'll see what happens, but the city is wounded, deeply yeah. wounded. We're not discouraged. I mean, this is what this city is famous for, an amazing level of backbounds, if I can create a new word. I don't even you know if can, it exists. You have, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of solidarity amongst its citizens. That's why I love the city so much. 
Well, I was going to ask, do you consider yourself a New Yorker now? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm a New Yorker and I'm, I'm a Milanese, but definitely a New Yorker first and foremost. Mm. Well, also a Milanese first and foremost. Now they made me think about it, but definitely <laughs> I'm a New Yorker through and through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've been pretty busy, as you suggested, over these months, kind of saving, being part of the team that's saving MoMA. But you've also found time to launch Design Emergency, which is on this Instagram platform with the design writer and critic Alice Rosthorn, where you kind of interview various people for half an hour or so across Instagram Live. How did that come about, Paula? Well, Alice and I have been friends forever. And we have collaborated in, you know, we found each other in conferences, panels, and many different projects, but we had never started something together. Now, of course, Alice, for any of you who's not already on her Instagram feed, has been running this stunning Instagram feed that is more than an encyclopedia of design. It's like a universe of design. So she's been doing that for a really long time. And uh, what happened is that when the pandemic started, the lockdown started, I had been listening to Fat Joe, you know, the uh, hip hop artist that was every night doing this Instagram lives. And then there was D-Nice that is a DJ in Los Angeles that was having these parties on Instagram live. And even though it was not at that time yet a very used format, I thought, interesting, Alice and I could do something like this for sure. And since we share this mission of letting as wide an audience as possible understand the importance and the amazing value of design, we thought, you know what, let's celebrate design and at the same time, uh, pay respect to the amazing people that are trying to step up and help the world through this tragic situation. We're talking, we were doing that, we started in at the beginning of April. So that was really the height of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say that you started in April by interviewing people like uh, Alicia Eckhart, the medical illustrator whose image of COVID-19 has kind of lodged in the global consciousness. She made that with Dan Higgins, I believe. Yes. But I'm wondering how the strand has progressed as the year has gone on and, and our understanding of the virus and its consequences has developed. Well, so what happened is that we really took the coronavirus pandemic head on until the summer. Not that anything has vanished right now, not at all. But then we started thinking about the rebuilding, the reconstruction after the pandemic. So after we had, uh, in the first phase of design emergency, after we had um, interviewed an anesthesiologist, Marco Ranieri in Bologna, that had invented the split ventilator, we had interviewed an entrepreneur in Afghanistan that had this young girls make PPE or, you know, after we dealt with PPE, with ventilators, with instructions on how to behave during the pandemic, we started thinking of the consequences of the pandemic and the reconstruction. So now that there's no more getting together in theaters and at concerts, how are collective experiences going to be designed and organized? And for that, we had S. Devlin. Mm. Or now that we are lacking some of the physical contact, how has the idea of comfort changed? And for that, you know, it's like we've been doing so many of these different experiments. It's really almost wonderful to think about all the possibilities because, for instance, Ilsa Crawford, who was um, the person that we interviewed about comfort, also really spoke about the connection between comfort and politics. Ultimately, you know what's interesting? Politics is about living together. And that's what 
this pandemic brought us back to, whether we talk about comfort, whether we talk about concerts, whether we talk about life in space. You know, we spoke with that person, Ercilia Baudo from the European Space Agency. It's all about how we will bring back the attention of designers to how to build the future so that we can live in uh, civil society and keep politics really front and center of the efforts of designers. Mm, mm. I mean, I'm interested in the combination of you and Alice, actually. What do you think you both bring to the project? Is it important, for instance, you're on different continents, I wonder? Not really. We share this passion and this mission. No, we share a passion for design. We really do believe it's, I mean, I'm saying my words, but I think that Alice will agree partially. I mean, she really loves art. I love art too, but I think that design is the most, is the highest form of human creative expression. And, you know, sometimes we disagree on certain points. Like, you know, sometimes I have more attention to form and I still believe that uh, formal elegance is very, very important, maybe because I'm in an art museum, so they always like hammer it in me. <laughs> and instead, Alice is really about the social value of design. But we have a lot of commonalities. Usually we disagree on some instances, you know, some examples that we want to bring through. But we share a lot. And the combination, I think it's more like when you have a banter, when we do our double acts, we're slightly different but at the same time we really speak with two voices but one mind almost mm. right so i think it's beautiful and and it's quite natural we didn't really plan it that much i'm fascinated i have to confess by your respective bookshelves that you're filmed in front of when you do your double-handed <laughs> episodes <laughs> <laughs> because because alice says it all right well you it's quite tell. intriguing <laughs> Alice's is pristine. <laughs> Every book quite obviously has a place. Yours, I have to tell you, it's a little bit messier. And I'm wondering if that says something about the way you both work. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the difference. You know, it's, <laughs> it's beautiful that way. But um, Alice is so good also. She has very serious journalistic training. I am an admirer of journalists, but I don't have that training. So I also love it because sometimes she just like fixes things that I write in a way that I'm like, oh my God, this is fantastic. <laughs> I learn a lot from her. But yeah, those two bookshelves say it all. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a bit about your background, Paolo? Because you were born in Sardinia, but brought up in Milan. What did your family do? Were they interested in design? So I was born in Sardinia because both my parents are from Milan, but my dad was a surgeon, I mean, he still is, but he was a surgeon in the university system in Italy. And in Italy, it's a nationwide system. So when you're a young uh, surgeon or a young doctor, they send you to the boondocks. And I'm very proud to have been born in Sardinia, which is considered a kind of like far from, Sardinians call it the continent, you know, Italy. It's a proud and gorgeous land. So I was born there because my dad was there at that time. And when people say that I'm Sardinian, my parents are always saying, you're Milanese. I'm like, no, I'm Sardinian. And then I was brought up in Milan. Both my parents are doctors. But what is very important to say is that design in a place like Milan, especially, is part of everybody's life. So there are different strengths in different parts of the world. And in Milan, design is part of the conversation when you go to buy bread at the bakery, or if you're talking to your friends, if you go to the hair salon, there are, you know, people in as magazine, and then there's like Domus and Abitare, architecture and design magazine. When the furniture fair happens, as it does 
normally in April in 2021, they pushed it to September. It's a citywide celebration. Like, you know, that's the beauty of it. Fashion week is kind of snooty and uh, with a few black cars that move around and lots of velvet <laughs> ropes. And instead, Design Week is really a fabulous party. If any of you haven't been, you should really try it because it's beautiful. But your first job was at Armani in the press office as an intern there. So you obviously had an interest in fashion. Well, even fashion is part of Milan. Those are, you know, design and fashion are part of the DNA of Milan. So I was 15. So literally my sister's best friend's mom was the PR for Armani. So I would finish school like around one, grab a piece of focaccia and then walk five blocks and be in Via Durini where Armani was at that time. Mm. And I would work the afternoon there. So age 15 to 18, I was just forever intern. (laughs) And it was wonderful because It was a great experience. And I really think I used every part of Milan. I ate all of it. Yeah, yeah. Were your parents keen to kick you out of the house? Or is this a work ethic that meant you were spending your afternoons working after school? A work ethic. And my parents, you know, my dad paid for his university correcting proofs at the newspaper and playing jazz piano. So there's a little bit of this romanticism, even though I was very comfortable when they were not really strapped for money anymore. But still, there was this sense that you should work and you should do your thing. Because initially you studied economics before changing to architecture. What prompted that? That is true. I was a little bit like my bookshelf, right? I was a little bit all over the place. I was really interested in everything, which was really a problem from astrophysics to nuclear physics to journalism. Then I guess I just went for the hardest university out of like an ego trip. And so I was studying not business, I was studying economics. And I realized that I just was not good enough for it. I really was not doing well and I was very unhappy. And so after two years, I moved to architecture without telling my parents. I just changed, switched, and they were not happy because, you know, economics at the Bocconi was very serious and very dependable. And uh, instead, architecture at that time was the school together with law where you went when you didn't know what to do in life. And it was free, right? (laughs) So it was mass university. I read there were 15,000 people on your course. So yeah, literally we were 15,000. 15,000 people? Yes, exactly. Exactly. We were 15,000. Only architecture, only Milan. Yes. So you you know, it's complete chaos and uh, you need to make your own path. There's different ways, right, to be educated. So there's a system where there's like a big filter at the entry of the university. And instead, in Milan, the filter was throughout the university. Many people fell by the side along the way. So very few people in the end graduated and even fewer would become architects. I'm an example. I didn't work as an architect. You never wanted to be an architect? Why didn't you take it up or practice? I have almost a feeling that I've never made a clear decision in life and things happen to me, right? So I switched to architecture because it was this chaotic cauldron of maybe creativity, right? But I had no clue. It's not I wanted to become an architect. I wanted to run away from economics. I tried working as an architect for six months, but even in that case, I had no patience. In the meantime, I was already working as a journalist. So even Mm -hmm. though I didn't have Alice's training, I was working as a journalist when I was a teenager already for the style page of a newspaper, then at Domus and Abitare. And I liked that instant gratification that came with journalism, right? So you didn't have to wait for like five years for a building to be realized. It was either a daily or it was a monthly, but you could really see your work realized. And I was also starting to be freelance curating. So frankly, 
I never really ended up wanting or had the time to want to become an architect. I already had this great, interesting opportunities happening. Mm. So I would talk about surfing. I was doing a lot of paddling and I was working really hard, but then I would catch the right wave. Right. I'm intrigued because you took this route, which is now quite common, from design magazines into museums. Was that a deliberate shift? Did you know in the early 90s what the rest of us didn't, that magazines were fundamentally doomed? Absolutely not. I didn't know anything. I told you I didn't make any decisions. I just like went with the flow. It all happened by pure chance because I was, remember the bookshelves. So I was working for Domus. (laughs) I was organizing conferences. Then I started teaching in Los Angeles at UCLA. And in the meantime, I was guest curating. So it was all this like big vortex of things happening. And I remember that one day I was in California and I was thinking, this is a little bit tiring. And I remember opening a magazine. It was ID magazine, but not ID hyphen magazine. It was I.D. magazine. So the old one. The old industrial design magazine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there was an ad from the position at MoMA. So I answered an ad. Even in that case, I did not say, I want to move to New York. I want, it was more like a challenge to myself. Let's see what happens. And then I got the position. I had never worked in a museum before. So see, it, it was really, I'm not kidding when I say that I was waiting for the paddling towards the waves. Mm. Was it a culture shock when you got to New York? Very much so. It was much more of a culture shock than Los Angeles. Maybe I had never really had a nine to five job. And also it was February, one of the meanest winters ever. So it was really also the environmental shock was amazing. I had never seen a memo in my life. You know what I'm saying? In Italy, you would just like amble towards the person and just get a glass of wine and talk things. And instead, first time I saw this memo in which somebody was repeating what we had said in this kind of very formal way, I was almost like, I was offended. (laughs) (laughs) It was really, it was, no, it was a big culture shock. And I have, you know, when people say, oh yeah, things are easy. It took me about two years to feel that I belonged in New York and at MoMA. I mean, everything was lifted by the first exhibition. You know, the moment I had to work on a show, I forgot everything else and I just started work. How defined was your role when you arrived? And has the institution's definition of design changed since then, I wonder? Well, it was always an open-ended definition, right? So MoMA was founded in 1929. So at that time, the Bauhaus model was dominant in the museum. So it was all the arts including architecture and design, coming together to build a better society. Maybe along the years, the concept of design changed, but it was always really about objects and posters, perhaps. So when I started, design was changing tremendously, and there started to be a digital culture, there Mm. started to be communication design. So even the definition of what graphic design was and what product or object design was, was changing. So I took to heart the motto that MoMA was about showing and collecting the art of our time. And I brought that definition of design through our time with myself. So I started acquiring at some point, not immediately, of course, but I started acquiring also interfaces, video games, the at sign, bio design, critical Mm. design. So I opened it up in that way, but other curators before me had opened it up to what was important at that time, like textiles or sports equipment. So I think we all do our part. I was lucky and I am lucky to be 
working at a time when design is changing so much that what I do is simply reflect what the changes that are happening. I remember you seeing a talk that you gave online where you said one of the first things you wanted to do when you arrived was uh, collect a Beretta, a gun. You were told no. Do you think that would change now? No, and I wouldn't be the one not to ever propose to acquire it. That would change. But it was really interesting because all of a sudden it put me in front of my essence of Italian. You know, Italy is a place where all sorts of political movements, even the most extreme and dangerous, have always been aestheticized somehow, right? So there's always an aesthetic justification to being amoral or immoral. It's fascinating. And I had never thought about it. So when I asked why, I shouldn't propose a Beretta. They told me that there are no weapons in the collection of design, you know, in the collection, they said. So I said, wait a second, it's not true. There's a lot of weapons in the painting and sculpture collection. And that's when I realized the big difference between design and art. Weapons in art would be a representation of weapons that was mediated by a certain intention that the artist wanted to communicate. And instead, in design, what you see is what you get. So when you show a gun, you're acquiring it for its form and for its function, which is to kill. So, wow, it was a a very interesting realization, which then led me to many more realizations. But that's uh, actually, I did quite the opposite. I did a whole project that was called Design and Violence that explored the relationship between design and violence and the ambiguity of certain objects. Well, yes, I was going to ask you about that because you did pitch that to MoMA, I believe, and they rejected it. I'm interested whether rejection has been an important part of your career. You've alluded that it has been in various clippings that I've read. Of course, rejections are always important because sometimes they make you really angry and uh, sometimes they force you to think. And, you know, in that case, I understand it. You know, I proposed it as an exhibition. This is an exhibition that might have worked in a design museum because it was an exhibition of negative examples. But in a place that is an art museum, you have to kind of follow a different narrative path. So I had a co-curator, Jamer Hunt. And so when it got rejected as an exhibition, we did what you do when you don't want to ask anybody's permission or money. And we started a WordPress site. We started calling in favors. He was teaching at Parsons, so used some of his research money to design the website. So we just started from scratch. And um, we especially used the potential of online to create a community and to have a connection actually with our readers or viewers. So it was really beautiful. You know, every other week we would uh, come up with another object that had an ambiguous relationship with violence. So for instance, the Toyota 4x4, right? So great utility vehicle, great for agriculture, and then all of a sudden it becomes the car of narco-traffickers and guerrillas, right? right? Or the Kalashnikov, amazing example of design and at the same time lethal because it is so open-ended. So we would have these objects and then we would uh, have a curatorial introduction, just explaining what the object does. And then we would ask an expert, somebody that had an expertise in that particular object to write a mini essay. But at the end, the beautiful thing is that we also asked a question to our audiences. That really made it amazing. For instance, we had one that was in Temple Grandins, you know, the animal scientist in California. It's about slaughterhouse, right? Exactly. Her redesign of the slaughterhouse, right? So she redesigned the slaughterhouse so that cows don't realize that they're going to be slaughtered because before they knew that at the end of the shoot was death. So redesign the slaughterhouse so that 
you die better, right? Wow. And the commenter was Ingrid Newkirk, who is the president of PETA, you know, the Society for Protection of Animals. Yeah. And the question was at the end, can we redesign a violent act to be more humane? And we had like more than 150 comments. So really a debate. So that's the beauty of it. You know, we were forced out of the galleries and onto the internet. The conversation, the project was really wonderful. Jamer and I had first Kate Carmody and then Michelle Millar Fisher helping us along the way. And then MoMA saw that it was so good and allowed it to the MoMA site. So all of a sudden we had a different kind of support. And then we decided to publish a book that was published by MoMA. So it's interesting. In Rejection is fascinating. Or even the Triennale of Milan also was a rejection that then became an exhibition. So it's fine. You know, it's uh, what you make of it. And this is not a platitude. It's the truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you said of that show that ambivalence and ambiguity are more instructive than excessively clear-cut positions. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that, Paola? Well, for instance, I like to organize public programs. And so we also experimented with live debates in our theater here at MoMA, modeled a little bit after an Oxford-style debate with some Mm. liberties, right? But what we found out is that the two debaters are much better if they're not opposed diametrically, but rather if they have slight nuances. For instance, we had a beautiful debate about the ways to keep the internet free. The two debaters were Larry Lessig, the great advocate and professor from Harvard, and Biela Coleman, who is the author of the book on Anonymous and is an expert on hackers. They believe the same. They are activists. They believe that the internet should be free and accessible to all. But the disagreement is that while Biela thinks that the only way for that to happen is civil disobedience, Larry Lessig says, well, wait, we have government, we have legislation. It might be shitty at times, but we need to use it, right? So we had that debate that was about the methodology. It was not about should the internet be free. No, it was about how do we keep it free. Well, that becomes a much more interesting debate than the kind of polar opposites. You can see it also in political debate right now. Polar opposites sometimes just don't even want to talk, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what we found out. When you joined MoMA, you, you talked about not having a plan, but did you ever, ever imagine you would have still been there 27 years later? No. <laughs> I did not make plans. You know, when people ask you, what's your five-year plan? I'm always like, I don't know, five year. Maybe I can tell you one year, but it's not my way of thinking truly. So I did not. But it's not so weird that I'm here 27 years. It's really an amazing place to be. It's an amazing platform when you do something here. The world kind of knows about it and hears it. So I'm really lucky. And has the design industry changed in those 27 years? I'm thinking also particularly when you joined Were there many women in design? I mean, traditionally, it's not been seen as a place for women, I don't think it's safe to say. Well, yeah, I think it was. I mean, it's the whole world that was a little unbalanced, right? Let's be frank. So I don't think it was particularly lacking of women. It was lacking women as all the other sectors of the world. So that's a change. It's not only that kind of diversity that we really need to fix. It's also the diversity. If anything, the problem is that There was this very Eurocentric, very white, and also very male-orientated kind of viewpoint that needs to be 
challenged in all facets of culture, in all facets of industry. So it was mimicking that. I think that the design world more than the industry changed tremendously with the advent of digital culture because that enabled access for many more people. So maybe it's a little bit a simplification, but when the world changed and design changed, and in a way there are many more branches of design right now. Design has, has always been a very collaborative discipline. In order to be an effective designer, you need to be able to know what you're missing and to bring the experts in. So whether you're a furniture designer and you want to know more about wood or whether you are a bio designer and you need chemical engineers and biologists, right? So designers are good at gathering knowledge from other fields. And now it's even more so. I think that one of the biggest skills for a designer is a capacity of synthesis. Yes, yes. Just coming back on the technology side at a moment, Paola, am I right in thinking that you wrote the code for the original MoMA website? Yes, you're right. <laughs> it's like, yes, I did. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Well, nobody really knew. It was 95. Yeah. So nobody really knew what a website was. When I told MoMA that I wanted to do a website, they really didn't know how to handle it, whether it was something for the communications office or something for the education department. So I was insisting. I said, you know what? Here's 300 bucks. Just do it. And so I used it to take out for dinner this graduate from this PhD, actually from the School of Visual Arts, and she taught me HTML and helped me code it. And it's still there. I mean, you can still find it. It was Mutant Materials in Contemporary Design. So you can still find the website on the MoMA site if you go to past exhibitions. Truly, the ambition, it was the very first one, but then other colleagues, Michelle Conkleton and Barbara London, immediately followed suit a few right. months later. We really had this ambition of disseminating and archiving. So that was the initial idea. We wanted to keep a record that was not only the catalog, because catalogs are fantastic, but they get out of print and they get lost. And instead, we thought a website is forever, which is funny. Right now, I have so many flash-based websites that are... <laughs> becoming obsolete because at the end of December, Adobe will stop supporting Flash. So it's fascinating. I realize that code is as fragile as ceramics. Well, that's an interesting one because obviously you have and do collect code with the video games exhibition, which you introduced to MoMA's collection. And that was kind of weirdly, in retrospect, controversial. I mean, you launched it in, what, 2012? And uh, I know The Guardian, Jonathan Jones and The Guardian got very shirty about the whole thing. It was only him. And he was one of the lone voices, frankly. I mean, really, I, it's funny because I thought it was so wrong and out of tune that when I read it, I felt bad for him. It's very funny. You know, when you feel like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry you wrote that, Jonathan. <laughs> because to me, it was almost like a no brainer, right? Once again, remember that motto, the art of our time. and. At the beginning, digital culture was really, really messy. And, you know, that's what happens with any kind of new technology. There's a moment of drunkenness in which everybody's testing it and they throw things against the wall and see what sticks. But then sobriety sets in. There starts being some critical tools, some terms of comparison. That's when you have to start. And that's when you have as a duty, if you're doing contemporary design, you have as a duty to help as a curator to help set some criteria, right? And so that's really what happened, right? That it was time. 
Jonathan's criticism was you cannot put Pac-Man next to Picasso. And I was thinking there's like three floors in between. <laughs> it's good alliteration though. Exactly. And also says who that at his time Picasso was not considered like Pac-Man. He was just so closed as a system in his mind. I think you need to start and somebody needs to start. And we were not the first ones to acquire video games, but we were the first art museum to tackle them. They had been in museums of moving image. And then, you know, the VNA did that beautiful exhibition. Yeah. We started the collection and it's just, um, it needs to happen. It's a very important field of contemporary creativity and also contemporary life and existence. We could not not tackle it. Normally in institutions, you have to persuade lots of committees and boards to do this kind of thing. Was it an easy persuading job? It was not that difficult. I mean, what we did is the same thing that we do at MoMA for everything that we haven't done before. We prepare like crazy. So it took us two years. We put together a committee of experts that helped us make up the list. Then we started talking about the criteria. We started talking about what to collect. Like, what do you collect? The code? What if you don't have the code? You know, so everything. How do you conserve them? So at the end, when we came in front of the committee and we made a presentation, we were Fort Knox. You know, we were so rehearsed and tested and we had almost all the answers that really it was not that difficult. There were some people that, of course, were opposed in principle, but it was not an opposition that came from us not being ready or us not having done the homework. And I was intrigued, I think, I read somewhere that the exhibition design itself, when you launched it, kind of echoed a Philip Johnson design. Or am I making that up? No, I don't recall that. <laughs> we'll edit that bit out, Paula. <laughs> no, no, oh, we'll make it up. No, no, when we acquired it in the collection, I remember the first time we showed the video games on purpose, we showed them together with pieces of furniture, with other, other types of design. We wanted to make the point that this was not a video game exhibition, that this was a design collection in which video games were part mm. of a whole attitude towards creativity that also included furniture and other examples. Mm, mm. Um, I was intrigued that 25 years or so after your first show, which was Mutant Materials, you did a show on Neri Oxman called Material Ecology. Can we look at the changes through the design world during your career through the prism of materials, I wonder? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely we can. The biggest change is biology, frankly, and the environmental movement. But there's also continuity. So Mutant Materials was an exhibition that I felt was important to do at that time because it's 1995, right? So for most of the history of furniture production, especially in the second part of the 20th century, designers had to rely on other industries and other experts to bring in the materials. So if it was not wood, which had been accessible for centuries, but say, for instance, plastics and polymers, they had to go to chemical engineers and in order to produce something like a plastic chair used to be produced by making a mold either in aluminum or in steel and then inject at high pressure and high temperature within that mold. So it was not something you could test, right? Mm -hmm. You had to rely on external expertise. And instead, around the mid-90s is when many materials started being much more uh, malleable even in a design studio, for instance, new resins could be cured at ambient temperature in molds that were not uh, made of metal, but rather they were made of composites. 
Then there were the new fibers and composites that could almost be sculpted by hand, right? And so on and so forth. So all of a sudden, designers could have control of the material, not only of the object, but also of the material itself. So I wanted to show that change in the center of gravity and this bigger powers that designers had. In between Newton Materials and Material Ecology, there's also Design and the Elastic Mind, which was an exhibition where I showed Neri's work for the first time, that was in 2008, that talked about the coming together of science and design, right? So the alliance of designers and scientists, not only technologists, but scientists, led also to a very rapid transmission of the importance of biology from science to design at the turn of the millennium, and even more so in the past 10 years, right? So Neri's work shows how the environmental concerns and the centrality of the issue of biodiversity and uh, the expertise in biology have become part of this power of design. So Neri is emblematic because her work is conducted with biologists that are part of her team, with chemical engineers, and also with animals, with natural entities. So Neri works with bacteria, she works with natural pigments like melanin, synthesized sometimes, she works with silkworms, you know, the centerpiece of the MoMA exhibition was this silk pavilion made by 17,000 silkworms, and so on and so forth. So it's about a new type of organic design that doesn't just imitate nature, but truly tries to become part of the way nature builds. Mm. And obviously, during your time at MoMA, climate change has become a, a huge element of the design debate. You did Broken Nature, which is on at MoMA at the moment, I believe. Yes. You've talked about it being a way that we can elegantly engineer our exit from the planet. So do you see human extinction as inevitable? Yeah, of course. I mean, everything comes to an end. As a human being, we're used to thinking about it as human beings. So when you know that the end is near, you start thinking of your legacy, right? So... That's what we should do as a species too. And I'm not saying that our end is near, but the spans of time that we're used to think in should be expanded when we think as a species. There's nothing sad or pessimistic about it, quite the opposite. There can be a sense of elation in the knowledge that we can design a better ending and we can build a better legacy. So very simply and very matter-of-factly, Broken Nature, which was the 22nd Triennale in Milan, was about the theme of restorative design. So once we establish we're going to become extinct and once we agree on the fact that we should do better, then we can go back and think of how to have a restorative attitude. You know, the environmental movement, many people trace it back to Rachel Carson's gorgeous Silent Spring from the early 1960s, a book that denounced the use of DDT, of the insecticide, and showed really how systemic one act can be and how it can create an avalanche of reverberations. After that really has sunk in, and in the past few years, especially the younger generation has taken it on and made it part of civil discourse, I think it's time to show that design doesn't have to self-flagellate in order to be responsible and sustainable. You know, one can be a designer and still seek the kind of aesthetic beauty, sensuality, humor, whatever you want, mm. whatever you sought in design before, you can do even now and still be responsible. That's what the exhibition was about. It was about 
presenting different strategies for designers and for citizens to be more responsible and to think of our legacy. And has the exhibition changed since it's moved venue? It has changed a lot. The venue in New York is slightly smaller. I was going to say, it probably must be, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So it is smaller. The Triennale is this uh, beautiful, by the way, that's where I started my whole career in my 20s, so it's wonderful. But uh, it's, a, it's a big building. It's a big building that was built only for architecture and design shows. So yeah, there's no comparison in terms of uh, square footage, but the essence of the exhibition is definitely here. And some of the anchor pieces are here. And, you know, we take them as footprints and as trampolines to have discussions like the one I'm having with you today. We're going to have our own podcast. We're going to be your rivals. We're going to be your competitors. And to keep the conversation going because it's a huge conversation. Our hour is nearly up, Paolo. That's gone tremendously quickly. I know. So it's a kind of classic final question. What's next for you? Well, there's so much that I am, as usual, working on. Remember the bookshelf. So I'm going to keep going with Alice on design emergency because we like to say together there is always a design emergency. You know, we have our own mm. little phrase. So we're going to keep going with that. And uh, I'm going to keep going also with my R&D salons. The R&D department that I founded is about proving to people that museums can be the R&D of society. So we tackle issues like death or like protest. You know, we just have these salons about these matters. So those are two, design emergency and the R&D salons. And then I'm studying two topics with in mind, either books or exhibitions will decide. One is interspecies design. So what it means to really know how to design with other species. And the other is systems. So finding ways to make people realize that we live in systems that are interconnected. And, you know, right now I'm telling you these two things and they seem so abstract and complex. And it's mm. my job to find design examples that bring them down to earth and make them understandable by all. That's interesting. And these are going to be shows or websites or a combination? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, combinations of everything. Right now, we are all working together to set programs for the next few years. So I don't know yet because I also have other exhibition projects. So it might be a website. It might be maybe even a format that I don't know yet. You know what I'm saying? It's like really, <laughs> that's also what's, what's super interesting is to see what kind of formats are possible. Now that so many stores are empty, and I'm telling you this because I'm thinking about it now for the first time. Now that many stores are empty, should I have something in the empty stores, you know, in the windows? Who knows? There's a whole world that can be a stage and a way to communicate to others. Well, that's a lovely and optimistic way of finishing it. Paola, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. It was really lovely. Thanks a lot. And to discover more about Paola's work at MoMA, go to moma.org. You can find Design Emergency on Instagram at design.emergency. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And I have a new website, you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.